0: Welcome to the Alternative Data Podcast. Welcome to the Alternative Data Podcast, powered by Exabel. I'm Mark Fleming Williams. In this episode, I speak to Tanzu Dimirbilek, an experienced macro quant investor who has previously worked at Campbell and Company, Mann Group, and Soros Investments. When Tanzu and I spoke, he was enjoying gardening leave before starting a new role. I asked him about his relationship with alternative data and how it had changed over the years. In other news, I will be speaking at Beryl Elite in New York on June the 20th and 21st. I hope to see many listeners there. So in this episode, I'm joined by Tansu Demebalik. Uh, thank you very much for joining today Tansu. Sure. So Tansu I we have you at a at an opportune moment um, because you are currently enjoying your gardening leave with your feet up um, in between um, Campbell and Company. Where you spent six years and five months um, in as a as the head of the systematic macro team. By the end, um, and uh, in the summer you're going to be joining a very very well known um, macro fund. Um, so we, in order to keep you busy in your gardening leave, we um, I've I've got you in to talk about all things alternative data and and mull over um, mull over some of your your background and a lot of your opinions about alternative data. So so very pleased to have you today.
1: Sure. Happy to join. Thank you.
0: Brilliant. So um, why don't we then start um, by talking about how did you first come across the concept of alternative data? When do you think you first started working with alternative data?
1: I don't think it was called alternative data back then. Um, Mm. So my my finance career started in 2007. um, And I first joined a uh, discretionary manager, discretionary macro manager called North Asset Management. Um, you know, I was I was a part time intern there. Then I joined as a quant analyst, and I was a market risk manager. And um, at that point, I mean, this is basically literally when you know Lehman was happening, and and we were just going through some you know really um, tough times. And you know, the idea of an alternative data. Idea of alternative data, which just was not there back then. However, you know, we were looking at some indicators that, you know, in today's world, in hindsight, you know, one may uh, label as as alternative data. So one thing that we were looking at was, you know, the Baltic Dry Index. Um,
0: which was, which was, it was, it was a measure. A lot of people were looking at the Baltic Dry at the time, yeah. wasn't it? And it's and it's, it's since lost its uh, its its value sure. in a way because because. But it was it was measuring, wasn't it? Um, the uh, essentially the the shipping movements, shipping um, activity. Yeah, it yeah. was
1: it was showing the shipping activity, um, and and I think I mean that that's there's there's a general theme there. Uh, since I worked at both discretionary and systematic managers, you know, one thing that I noticed in my throughout my career is that typically I mean humans are very fast in understanding the value and importance of different data points and 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 understanding how things relate to each other whereas you know in the quant world I think the bar is a little higher um you know you need to establish a you know long running relationship and you know good data quality and all those kinds of things so I think it's it's generally easier if you're at a discretionary shop to start making those connections and making decisions, because you don't really have the high bar of, you know, putting together a back If you think something makes sense, you just go with it. And, and that's what I noticed that, um, I have quite a few examples actually, but I want to kind of spread out my examples, but you know, that's something that, um, I've noticed, you know, typically at a discretionary shop, um, you see that these things are really kind of uh, being adopted a little early Um, but also a discretionary shop will just look at a certain data point for, you know, two, three months, and then it's, it's out of, um, out of favor. And then you move on to something else.
0: You've you so Tanza, you've touched on it. You are, I feel in the, in the pretty unusual position of having experienced both working on the discretionary side and working on the systematic side, Mm -hmm. um, Let's just I'm just going to rattle through your career just quickly, just to kind of establish so everyone knows what we're talking about. Sure. Um, you you as you say, you started at North Asset Management. Um, you you went to work for Man in their AHL research and trading. You went to work for Soros Fund. Um, you went to Anderson Global Macro. You've worked for Windhaven Investment Management, and most recently for the for the longest stint, you were at Campbell. Mm-hmm. So, in that, you you started us in two thousand and seven, and in and you've you've not been you've not been lazy in the meantime. You've you've made the most of it in terms of exploring <laughs> some of the top the top businesses really in the um, in the in the space and and getting a really good, a really good inside view of of them all you the fact that you've done discretionary and systematic let's say let's start in 2007 we are now um so that's 15 years ago um mm-hmm. how many of those years would you say you spent in discretionary and how many uh, you did you spend being a systematic investor
1: yeah i think i think it's mostly mostly systematic at core i've been 100% systematic um all the time However, the um, you know some of the shops that I worked at, I think overall maybe like three or four years, uh, maybe close to five was uh, spent at a discretionary shop. Um, but there was always a quantitative process. So what I personally did, I was always a quant analyst. It's just that I was working at a at a um, at a discre- disc- discretionary shop.
0: Sometimes you are undercover in a uh, in a discretionary yeah. shop. Yeah. Um, and it was always macro. It was
1: it was always macro. Yes.
0: Okay. Did it always tend to be a certain aspect of macro? Because macro obviously covers a lot of a lot of sins. Is, it, um, is there? Do you have a speciality within
1: macro? I wouldn't really say that. Um, no, not really. I mean, I've I've uh, dealt with um, all. I mean, mostly delta one asset classes, um, but all asset classes.
0: So, forgive my ignorance. What a, what a, what are delta one asset classes?
1: So basically, not options. Uh, something okay. that is a linear asset. So, you know, things like, you know, futures would be a Delta one asset class. Whereas yeah. if you're trading options, you know, swaps and things like that, um, that would not be Delta one. So, okay. um, yeah, but I mean, in terms of um, alpha generation. Um, so, yeah, I mean, I, I worked on lots of different parts of the business. I worked in risk management. Um, I worked on kind of building a hedge fund from the ground up, uh, just the very, very kind of the back end of things. Um, I worked on uh, trade implementation and most recently it was uh, very much alpha generation and uh, portfolio and risk management related, uh, related projects.
0: Okay. And so within that, so um, we've established that you've been, you've been doing alternative data since, since the start of your career, since 2007 in, 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 in different ways where, so how has alternative data um how is it uh has your use of alternative data uh changed over that time you 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 mentioned the baltic dry Mm -hmm. index which was an index which everyone was using a little bit
1: right
0: right was that kind of you know you were doing um and that was kind of the one the one off and it was kind of i don't know and only a little bit of your only a little bit of your of your work was using that and then if you if you bring it forward to Mm -hmm. 2022 was it all alternative data-based? I mean, how has that that relationship changed?
1: Um, It's definitely more productionalized right now. Um, And I think the kind of the the, the stepping stone between being purely technical uh, and using alternative data is the classical economic data. And I think that's what really kind of um, is is something that I was using quite a while ago, actually, um, and and the idea was well, how can we make sense of um, classical economic data? You know, things like the PMIs and and you know non farm payrolls, um, or even you know information from from the yield curve, for example. Um, those are all non price based information that I would probably not call alternative data, uh, but it's not price information either. So it's got it's got some some value. Um, so that's something that we were using all along in basically all of my shops there was some process that would include economic data into the decision making process. Mm-hmm. Um, it was either you know fully productionized in a systematic portfolio or you know I was building these quant models for for a discretionary portfolio manager um, and and that discretionary portfolio manager had a process in mind, but I you know my job was to provide. Um, that decision making tool in in either case i think it's a very um systematic process um a um interesting you know early example that i can give you is um i used to work with um an analyst when i was you know in 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 the risk group um at at man and um this analyst was was uh you know kind of telling me about his prior Work experience where you know he was working at a commodity shop, um, and they had these uh, people on the ground um, in the United States, and they would basically just uh, you know walk the fields and and um, and gather a quality of um, crop quality. Um, so these guys would basically just you know literally drive from field to field to field, you know have those you know neatly handwritten notes and just uh, you know send them back to the shop and, and you know that that was their decision making tool in terms of trying to get an understanding of uh what the what the crop crop quality was and obviously you were know they, fast, were they
0: were they paid do you think they were paying the farmer for permission or were they just driving up off the off the freeway and doing it
1: i i have no idea um i <laughs> yeah. don't know but i mean obviously if you're driving right and and there's a field that you know within your 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 viewing distance um that i believe that's public information you know because you can see it um, just like, you know, in today's world, when um, the satellite images are being taken, I don't think the farmers are being paid uh, for the picture that the satellites are taking pictures of, right?
0: Seeing from the road is one thing, but walking yeah. amongst it, they may have something, oh, right. like that, something oh, to yeah, say. Yeah.
1: But yeah, yeah, exactly. So I don't know the details and I did not use that Yeah, yeah yeah, yeah, yeah. But yeah. the point is, I mean, I think um, people had the idea of these types of data. It was just that the technology wasn't there to, to collect the information properly completely um, right and and once we start collecting that information now it actually becomes valuable data and and we all start using it
0: i mean uh, development or or, or or growth is really about um making processes more efficient isn't it and then that frees you up to do other things uh similarly the um uh I had a, I had recently had an example of someone who did literally used to go and count cars in parking lots, you know, they, they, uh, and then mm-hmm. a satellite comes along and, um, and, and, and does it for you type thing yeah, in a much yeah. quicker way, which then frees you up to spend your time <laughs> doing more intense data science or modeling or whatever you're doing.
1: Yeah, that um, was going so. to be my second example, actually. I, I also worked <laughs> at a discretionary shop. um And, and we had, we had this one guy. Who would just you know go and count uh cars in a parking lot on a weekend and Monday morning, sure enough, we would get a report about like how many cars he was seeing in you know various parking lots <laughs> with the names of the malls, so yeah, that's automated too now is it do you
0: do you feel like um because that there were a lot of creativity actually and a lot of kind of get up and go hutspur to 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 have the idea to go and count cars in the parking lots mm-hmm. do you feel like the same people are using the same skills to now um, go and search for existing data sets? You have a thought of a data set and then you, have, then you have to go and find it? Or do you think it's different people now um, in the hedge funds because actually searching for a data set is very different? The, the, the skills needed to go and search for a data set is very different than the skills needed to have the idea of going and actually mm-hmm. spend your Sunday in a supermarket car park. You know, it's a, it's a kind of skill.
1: I, yeah, I think it's a different skill. Um, but there's still a need for people who come up with these ideas in the first place. Um, mm. so the guy who came up with the idea of counting, you know, cars in a parking lot, um, I I mean I might be wrong, but I, I'm guessing that person may not have the technical skill set of like, you know, writing Python code and mm. and and productionalizing something, but that guy is an idea generator. So mm. you know, and and that person may have some amazing new ideas that none of us have thought about, and it might actually turn into a brand new data product at some point, you know. And and um, I think those are different skill sets. And to be honest, I feel like we really need both of them. We can't we can't have one without the other.
0: So you've worked in a few places. Do you recognize the skill set of a guy who's just sat generating ideas without any measurable? Like either financial or coding skills.
1: No financial and no coding skills. Yeah, I think you probably need one of them. Um, yeah, I, I, not not having either is, is is really hard. I think that's probably luck. Um, I've you know I've seen some lucky people and they came up with these one-off ideas. and unfortunately, luck is is um, dangerous because you know if you if you're lucky and you come up with one idea, you may end up being overconfident in your abilities. And and that is that is quite dangerous. Um, so one thing, you know, in the quant world, one thing that we, you know, value is is collaboration and 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 being humble, um, and just the value of of hard work because we realize that, you know, in a lot of instances you're you're gonna get it wrong. And it's just the, the, the tenacity and the persistence is what really what really pays off um in in most instances. So um, yeah, I mean, I think, you know, obviously, skill set is important. And you know, if you don't have the quant skill set, you can you can um, gather it, you know, um, yeah. the, the online courses are amazing these days. Um, I'm actually, you know, part of the way I'm spending my garden leave is just going through uh, some machine learning courses that I just really wanted to do for a long time. And I haven't had the time or the chance to do it. So I think um, I think those skills are um, are easily gathered. So I don't see that as a as a reason to um, to not
0: them. Yeah. yeah, yeah, yeah. It's it's all get up and go, essentially, isn't it? If you've got the yeah. get up and go, then you'll go and train yourself. Yeah. Um, but so how about, why don't we rattle through some potential and uh, see if you like this idea, rattle mm-hmm. through some, some asset classes. And I don't know how you feel about giving me an example of a type of time when a piece of alternative data has been useful in it. So mm-hmm. has there been a time where an alternative data set has been useful in doing something with uh foreign exchange? Yes. What was it? <laughs> <laughs> See, I can't tell you that. <laughs> okay, you can't tell me that. You can't say, you know there was a time when um a we we used a lot of credit card data to um to predict what the dollar was going to do against the yen or anything like that
1: um no i can't really give you like specific data sets and what we did with it but you know maybe i can i can try to answer this question a little bit more generally yeah yeah, yeah. Um, whatever you can do yeah sure okay so my my personal feeling is um the I think there's there's a bit of a quant conundrum that I went through and a lot of the a lot of the quants um go through which is um when you start dabbling with alternative data um you quickly realize that the alternative data number 1 does not apply to many markets and number 2 it does not have enough history and let's leave aside the data quality issues let's ho- let's hope that the data quality is there but yeah. you typically don't have enough history, and you don't. It, it doesn't apply to many markets. So, I think that kind of quickly corners you into. If you think about the t-stats of the of the alpha that you're that you're generating, um, that kind of quickly corners you into a relatively low t-stat. Because you know there there are two ways you can increase your t-stat in your alpha. Let's say you know you 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 know you've done all the right things in in, in terms of not overfitting your alpha. You still need to understand. Well, is this alpha statistically significant? How can I test that? Number one, well, I need I need lots of independent data samples. So where am I going to get those independent data samples from? Um, either I need long time history or I need a large cross section of un, uncorrelated markets. Um, and let's take the example of credit card data, right? Um, so let's let's say we're using credit card data. Um, the investment hypothesis quickly kind of narrows into a a handful of companies. Um, and, you know, you, so let's say I'm, 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 you know, trading a five, six, five or 6,000 uh, names in my cash equity book. I will not be able to apply that uh, data set to all of the companies. So I have to narrow my cross section and also I have to narrow my time series. So now you're, you're really in this, kind of confined area. And I think that's what a lot of the quants are kind of feeling cornered um, because, you know, these are, we know that these are some good ideas. Uh, Maybe they have a bit of a shelf life, um, especially when they become more and more commoditized. But until you hit that shelf life, you may actually end up with some, you know, good alpha. Um, But the problem is it's really hard to um, build some statistical confidence and, in, in trying to understand whether or not we can use that data. So I think that's the kind of conundrum that I went through in my career. Well, so, so just
0: to, so you can find alpha, you can stumble on some alpha, you can say, Hey, Mm -hmm. this is making money. But the issue is, is is sometimes that you don't know why, (laughs) why it's making money. And you also don't know how long it's going to make money for. And you've got very, you don't have very good, um, long data sets, which can, say which can tell you look this has been making alpha for 10 years had you been doing it so there is a chance that it's going to carry on for the next 10 years is that what you're saying
1: yeah exactly like you know basically can i reject the null hypothesis that i stumbled upon this alpha by chance Mm. Um, and in order to run that formal statistical test i need lots of data in order to be able to say look i'm going to reject the Null hypothesis that this is purely by chance. I think there is some real legitimate alpha in here, um, mm-hmm. and I think humans, you know, can make that connection very easily. You know, credit card data and and um, you know, there's there's a very direct uh, connection between between that and and the profitability of of uh, certain companies. So yeah, you can make that connection very easily. But you know, if you want if you want to wait for the data to tell you. Um you're gonna to have to wait for quite a long time and and uh, alpha may um have hit its shelf life by the time it's telling you that it was it was there so you may you may be chasing a dream at that point.
0: so what's the answer?
1: I think the answer is um you know us quants need to relax our uh requirements a little bit in 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 certain cases and and you know what I call um uh, this phenomenon is something like an idiosyncratic alpha. Um, You have to accept the fact that um, the alpha that you generate will not be applying to all the markets that you can think of. So it effectively requires using some human judgment to be able to say, look, I'm going to use credit card data um, and I am not going to apply to, I don't know, healthcare companies because this really doesn't, doesn't make sense. And you can formalize it in a quantitative way. But I think just using that human judgment um, is good. And also, I think we we should be open to using some, you know, um, innovative quantitative techniques to validate the data. Um, So, you know, another example I can give you, which I can give you because I I did not do this, um, Mm. is, uh, you know, let's say there's there's a project, the Billion Prices Project, which um, aims to predict um, inflation by you know using price data from all over the internet mm. uh, that was something I believe State street was sponsoring and um the issue is that data set has a limited history so you know how can we how can we make sure that that using that data set would have would have been profitable? you know one thing you can do is you can say well, you know um let's say this data set will give me a close enough prediction of the inflation print five days in advance. Um, and the, the R squared of that prediction is, I don't know, you know, let's say 10%. Uh, you know, I'm being, um, you know, somewhat conservative here. So we can actually simulate that process um, just using those main elements of of the prediction, even though, you know, we don't have more than five years of data, or maybe they do at, at this point. But again, for example, say, even though I don't have that much, that much data, one thing I can do is I can simulate a process um, that will allow me to kind of say, okay, what if I had an inflation print estimate, um, you know, five days in advance with this kind of predictive power, can I do something with it? Can I actually... Can 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 this be turned into a, um, a a tradable signal? So I think there there are some ways around it um, by by using some quantitative techniques. But essentially, what um, what we as quants need to do is kind of relax our um, our requirements because otherwise, you know, we're going to be stuck in uh, trading price based uh, signals. Because I mean, honestly, that's that's kind of a very high bar, but um, that's what we've uh, been spoiled with
0: yeah well in in the in the past yeah that's what that that's what there was that's all there was before alternative data in a way sure yeah. but <laughs> um okay big big uh grand question mm-hmm. how do you uh how do you cope with geopolitics in your um macro uh work
1: um could you maybe uh explain that a little more? <laughs> Well, you are trying, you're
0: you're running a, you're running a strategy um, and it's, and it's dealing with some big, grand macro um, asset. Uh, Mm -hmm. Let's say it's, uh, it's something, it's something global. Mm -hmm. And then uh, Vladimir Putin decides to invade Ukraine. Um, You and your business are trying to predict the future. And so are you, trying to predict the fact that Vladimir Putin is going to invade Ukraine, it's going to have X result on wheat prices, which may throw off your model in in, in Y way? Or are you, um, are you trying to choose macro strategies that uh, what Vladimir Putin does won't affect? Or are you setting up your strategy and you want an early warning if something crazy is happening, such as Russia invading Ukraine? How do you cope with the fact that Russia might invade Ukraine? How does it affect your Thinking when you're when you're building a strategy,
1: right? Um, well, first of all, when, when that unfortunate event happened, I was not running any money, so I don't yeah. have any specific thoughts on that. But um, in so in general, I think that is more of a um, risk decision. Um, very short term, idiosyncratic events such as a war, um, even even you know things like um, the the start of the pandemic, right? Um, they are shocks to the system that um, unfortunately quantitative um, strategies are not well equipped to deal with. Mm-hmm. I think quantitative strategies are, are in general very well equipped to deal with the uh, the aftermath. So, you know, once things start to shake out, um, you know, let's say you have like a long trend in commodities or something like that, um, you know, and, and, and generally both price-based and um and other types of uh quantitative strategies are well equipped to um you know to use those signals but the the initial reaction is um is is not it's it's very very hard for quant uh, strategies to deal with so and that's why we have risk management especially in quant shops um you know you have uh, you know risk managers who come up with different scenarios um, you have uh, position limits and 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 various ways of dealing with uh, both, you know, forecastable risk and risk that is not uh, forecastable. So, you know, you want to make sure that you have uh, you don't have a portfolio that is extremely concentrated in in one asset or in one asset class. So there, there are various ways of dealing with it, which is basically through incorporating diversification in your um, in your portfolio. Um the other thing that um, is interesting is, um, you know, more conditional alphas. So, um, you know, trying to time your alpha, trying to figure out, you know, when a certain type of alpha may or may not uh, make money. So let's say you're, you're in an um, environment where the implieds are significantly elevated uh, relative to the realized volatility of a certain asset. Um do you think that the, um, the 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 realized risk is the correct measure at that point? It may not be, um, and it may also tell you something about whether or not that alpha will work in a in an elevated implied um, uh, implied volatility scenario. So, so I think um, it is possible to create some of these conditioning factors that will give us um, some expectation of whether an alpha may or may not work, um, but. I can tell you from experience that that is much harder to do than just creating a simple linear model. Um, it is possible to overfit in a lot of cases, but um, I mean perhaps that's where uh, some of the extra juices. There, there
0: exists in the market. Um, I know uh, companies that claim to provide a geopolitical risk number, um, mm-hmm. and it's a geopolitical risk monitor and so they'll say right it's gone up it's gone down I don't know if it's percent or whatever so it's been 20% for years and it's just gone up to 60% do you think that number if it's reliable would be useful in your model um, in terms of uh, so the Russia Ukraine part would be going up to 70 80% and that could um, be an interesting a useful input into your model if it was reliable
1: if it was reliable, um, yeah, I mean, I would be interested in finding out how that data series was, um, was put together. You know, where is it coming from? Is it, um, based on some natural language processing? Is it based on some combined, um, expert inputs? Um, also how, how fast is it changing and how reactive is it? So, you know, if, if, if I were to hear that the, um, you know the the risk has increased after an invasion uh, has taken place. obviously, that is not very valuable information <laughs>
0: yeah 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 okay um fair enough so um on to our next a next topic um mm-hmm. you have worked in various data shops, as we say and and mm-hmm. uh, sorry various hedge funds. you've seen various ways of handling um alternative data. Right. coming into the into the fund and and reaching you essentially as the as the as the final user what do you think is best practice in terms of creating how that process works what's is there a is it all about having a centralized data team has that has that worked well for you or or maybe you've heard from other people as well mm-hmm. or is it or is it good to allow you to go off, uh, give you a, a budget and go off shopping for yourself? Or what do you think is the best way to manage the the bringing in of data into a hedge fund?
1: Right. Um, it definitely helps to have a uh, centralized data team because there's a lot of um, activities. I mean, it depends on obviously the size of the research team, but um, I think it definitely helps to have even just one person who is kind of the go-to person for data. Um, there, there are obviously legal aspects, you know, contract negotiations, things like that. Um, but also just, you know, having a an, an in-house person who is willing to be kind of the conduit for, uh, you know, anything that's related to the data warehouse and cleaning and providing a nice standardized API um, to the researchers is is quite valuable. Um there are obviously some issues with that which is you know if if my research team is trying to you know validate lots of different data sources and, and not validate evaluate lots of different data sources um, I may not want to bother my my data team to onboard data um, that I'm basically in the process of evaluating um, you know one thing that I I used to think of is, you know, well, if I'm if I'm going to evaluate, you know, five different data sources, or let, let's say, you know, my goal is to evaluate three different data sources. And if, if the budget uh, permits, I would like to onboard one of them. I would consider myself successful. The reality is you would probably look at, you know, five different data sources and you're lucky if you can onboard one of them. So one out of five, you know, 20% hit rate, in my opinion, is is good. So, what happens to the eighty percent that you did not onboard? If you're um, if you're asking your data team to onboard all that data almost in a production like platform while you're evaluating, then you know it's it's kind of a waste of time for your data data team. Um, so, I think that the the um, the way it works the best is be good friends with your data guy. Um, you know, and and when you're talking to a data vendor, you know, make sure there's one person from the data team that's involved in you know a brief conversation with the with the data vendor. Um, but then during the evaluation, I think it's um, it's fine for the researchers to go out on their own and just get the data in as quickly as possible. Be nimble about it, and and do your evaluation. And when you're done with your evaluation, then. You know, if you think there's value in the data, hand it off to the data team, let them bring it into their standard data warehouse, and then uh, bring it into your platform that way. Because uh, there, there are a lot of things that the, the, uh, a dedicated data team can handle and think about that um, sometimes us researchers are not really uh, well-equipped to, uh, to do.
0: So have a centralized data team. But also involve the research team mm-hmm. in the process of of discovering whether whether a thing has um, has value or not. Is yeah. there a is there I mean is there a is there a need for a kind of uh, separate evaluation place where it can happen quickly where it doesn't need to be onboarded? You know, is there is that? Well, I, I mean, we're just talking about samples here, aren't we? Can't they can't can't a sample be onboarded quite quickly?
1: Yeah, I think so. I think so. I mean, you know, somebody needs to understand the data. Um, and I think usually um, I would think that the researcher who comes up with the trading idea would be the best person to understand kind of in depth what that data really means. Um, so that's why I think it's good to start with the, with the research team. But again, you know, the, I think at the end of the day, the data team will own that data. So you got to, you got to bring them in and, and um, the more um quote experts you have in the data team who who can really kind of go do a deep dive into the data and understand what that data really really is uh meaning um that would that would definitely be uh be better
0: so does it tend to be um how does it tend to be that you think how does the process work do you think i've got an idea i think looking at the market i think that there's a potential that we could we could trade this Mm-hmm. We just need the perfect data set, which will, which will sort it out. Um, and then you set off the process of trying to find that perfect data set. You've got a pretty clear idea of what you want. And you either look yourself or you send your data team or whatever, and they go, they go, they go searching for it. Or does it tend to work the other way around, that someone puts a data set in front of you and you tinker away at it and you, and you fiddle with it and you go, wait a minute, this has got a really interesting strategy um, that, I, that can make a lot of money and um and then you then you use it till it's exhausted and wait until another data set comes along
1: I think it can happen both ways I've seen it happen both ways actually um, so and I think that this also goes to you know what's what's the you know best uh best data source right so if somebody if let's say a data vendor was putting in front of me a a, a beautiful um, signal you know process signal that is like guaranteed too sharp in back tests and all that kind of good stuff um, I'm, I would be very skeptical about it. Um, You know, number one, it's really hard to come up, come up with these things. And and number two, if it has too sharp, why are you selling it to me? Um, You know, you can trade it yourself. (laughs) So, uh, right. I mean, there's, and and even if it is being sold to me, I don't always,
0: they don't always have like, so so it's a, it's a, I often have that Quoted to me, you know, the hedge fund said this, and and then the eye roll because actually, you know, you're not necessarily set up as a business to right. to, to trade it yourself. You know, you're a data provider. You 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 don't right. you don't trade so much. You know, you. No, that's uh, true.
1: I think that yeah, uh, maybe that was a bit of a harsh comment, um, but, it's, but it's, it's not an uncommon one. It, no, no, no. no I it, I'm, yeah, I'm sure up. you heard that before. I mean, the other thing is, of course, you know, if um, the more commoditized a uh, data set is. Meaning the more it is ready for consumption. It's kind of like plug and play alpha. Um mm. I, I think that kind of reduces the value of it because a lot of other investors would see the same thing that I'm seeing in that data, the value. Um and, and that obviously will so so
0: So you can't see your you can't see your value add, essentially. Like you can't <clears throat> see what, what you what you're gonna do to make money and, and if it's already on the market at that, then then you know, yeah then everyone can get it.
1: I mean, no, if, if it's going to make money, I'm happy, um, you know, but I'm 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 skeptical because, um, you know, somebody else may jump on it. Somebody another person may jump on it. And at the end of the day, these alphas have uh, limited capacity. So the more plug and play it is, what really ends up happening is you have correlated positions and trades coming from five, six, seven different shops. Um, and and I think that's why it's important for um, quantitative investors to come up with their own alphas even if they're using a an alternative data source that is kind of like the same data source um, think of it as as price data right we're all using the same price data but we come up with you know different techniques and different ways of of um, you know coming up with our with our strategies and hopefully there's there's a bit of uncorrelatedness in our positions. And um, that means, hopefully, that our alphas are not going to be eroded, um, you know, like a, a, an alpha that everybody else is trading. Um, so I think that the same idea applies to alternative data. I think there's definitely a lot of value in alternative data. Um, it is just that if it becomes as close to a plug-and-play alpha, in my mind, the, the, uh, the value is less because my perceived future potential returns mm-hmm. from that alpha is less
0: yeah that sounds familiar mm-hmm. so um here we are we're towards the we're towards the end of april you are on guarding leave in between in between mm-hmm. two jobs um what do you think of your you're you're presumably reading the news every day and kind of keep and as you say mm-hmm. you're, you're 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 training yourself up as well you're you're you're, you're rocky on his on his training yeah. um training schedule and a montage what are you what are you looking around you where do you think we're at in terms of um, uh, the macro picture? Where do you are you do you think we're in a difficult environment? Is an exciting environment? Do you think we're at a time of change? Have you got any any kind of view on where we are now compared to where we have been?
1: I have very little discretionary views but I'll share one of them with you. Mm. Um it, it's definitely been exciting for for quantitative uh firms. I mean if you look at um the the returns of the quantitative firms over the last, you know, 12 18 months, um it's it's definitely been an an amazing ride, um almost similar to to 2014 if not better. So, you know, Do obviously. You know why? Um yeah, I mean, there there are some really decent protracted trends that I think um, a lot of uh, quantitative managers were able to latch onto, especially on the directional side. So, um, you know, obviously the Fed starting to go down this um, hiking path. Um, even you know, Jay Powell's uh, you know words yesterday of, hey, you know, maybe we're going to do a fifty basis point hike rather than twenty five. I mean, it's really set us into a path that. Um, and, and given the constraints of, of, of uh, central banking, global central banking, you cannot really hike rates. You know, in, in a developed country, you cannot really hike rates in you know five to ten percent in one go. So it has to be done in a um, in a gradual manner. Gradual means predictable. Um, so the more predictable s- certain moves are, um, obviously, you know, there will be opportunities of, um, of financial gains. So. Mm-hmm you know what does that mean i think you know um the, the the downside on the on the treasuries have been um you know quite um, well um uh capitalized recently um similarly with uh, with the moves in in general in, in in commodities um so those are kind of the big uh directional asset moves um what comes next i think is going to be a lot of relative value opportunities that Um, you know, once the big directional wave has gone away, what you end up with is a lot of mispricings, Uh, lots of, you know, tiny little mispricings that, you know, the relative value managers and come in and clean up. And I think that's, um, that's perhaps uh, the, the next phase.
0: What kind of alternative data do you immediately think? might be useful in the, in the, in the system we're in, and, and, and generally again, here we are kind of mm-hmm. early going on mid 2022, what kind of alternative data is exciting you?
1: One thing that's quite exciting to me, and I, I'm not sure if it's going to be an immediate project for me or not, but um, natural language processing is, you know, that's something I've been studying recently and I'm getting more and more excited about it. The way I think of it is, um, you know, initially, we thought of um, data as text, so we would take uh, data and we would we would turn it into text. In in um, you know like early humans, let's say you know we would say, oh you know it's it's rainy today. It's it feels warm today. So there's actually an underlying data um, that is you know the temperature in Fahrenheit or whatever um, that we turn into kind of a text or a qualitative assessment of the situation. Um, You know, in in, uh, kind of more recent history, we we started, you know, we have like things like data journalism, where government publishes a CPI number, and it gets reported as text. So you have data journalism where people are talking about, you know, the number that was that was published. Um, And I think we're going the other way now. Um, When, you know, when Jay Powell says something or, or, you know, Netflix earnings come out. Um, Those are words that are immediately turned into, into data. Um, So, you know, that, so how, how do you take advantage of that? I think you need a good natural language processing um, engine. And it's not just in my mind, it's not just, you know, one technique among many others. I think that's where um, a lot of valuable data really exists. Um, I I personally don't believe in going in, um, going going through lots of tweets and trying to figure out who's saying what because, obviously, there's a lot of noise in in that kind of feed, especially in today's world when you know everybody is giving a little piece of their mind and onto Twitter and, and the social social media. Um, but, you know, if you look at um, I don't know the president's tweets or um, or or you know the Fed chair's uh, words, things like that. Um, that I think gives you a lot of information. There's a lot of information content there that, um, if if parsed properly and ahead of the discretionary crowd, then um, you know you would definitely have a benefit in terms of investing.
0: Uh, to plug a former guest, I, I don't know if you know about um, Helios Life, who uh, not not just they're not just doing NLP on the um, on the on the words, they're also doing it on the tone. In which it's spoken as well to actually ah. understand whether the guy who's saying what he's saying believes what they're saying or, or, is it, or is secretly excited about it or whatever. Um, so, <laughs> That's this really is, cool. This is I should go back cut,
1: and listen to that episode.
0: For sure, for sure. It's the cut, cutting edge of, of NLP, I think. So, Excellent. there's always new technology, isn't there, taking you to the next step? Yeah, absolutely. Um, Brilliant. Well, Tanzu, I think we have, um, I think, been a, a really interesting conversation. Um, I'm, I'm very pleased to have caught you in between, in between jobs, where we could have a kind of free conversation, and, um, <laughs> and yeah, fill me. up, fill up a little bit of your day as well. It's clearly, a, it, uh, I'm sure it's a, I'm sure it's a problem. Oh uh, yeah, <laughs> yeah. Enjoy.
1: It's, it's, it's great to talk to people <laughs> rather than my cat. <laughs>
0: pulled you off the beach for a second but um but yeah but um tantu great speaking thanks so much and um and yeah best of luck with your um with with the with the new venture when you when you get started
1: all right thank you so thank you so much and stay in touch cool